0: Good morning. It's good to be with all of you. If you'll uh, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, uh, we're going to be looking at the birth of Christ today. So as we prepare for Christmas Eve and Christmas on Tuesday and Wednesday, uh, we're looking at uh, the story about the birth of Jesus. You know, So a good time to look at it right before Christmas. And so Luke chapter 2. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a black one in the pew in front of you. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, if you don't own one, uh, that's our gift to you. So if you don't have a Bible at all and you need one, we would love for you to take that home with you. That would be a huge blessing to us for you to have one, uh, and that's uh, ready and available for you right there. So Luke chapter 2, we're going to be looking at the birth of Christ today. If you've been with us, we've been in the Gospel of Luke for a few weeks now, and what a gospel is, is it is an account or an announcement of good news. And so that word gospel, it means good news, and so Christians often talk about uh, the gospel, the, the good news of Jesus Christ, and so that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about uh, how, how and why this is good news, the birth of Jesus Christ. This is what Advent is all about. Advent simply means coming. And so, when we celebrate Advent, when we celebrate Christmas, we are celebrating the fact that God Himself has taken on flesh and come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, that's what we're celebrating. That's why we are filled with joy. That's why we sing the songs that we just sang today. So, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. And you'll have to pardon me if I take some drinks of water. Last week I was very ill, uh, and so now I'm feeling much better, but I still may have to uh, drink some water as we go. So Luke chapter 2, we're going to look at three things about hope today. We're going to see that our hope is found in God's sovereignty, God's incarnation, and God's revelation. So Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Here's what we read. (laughs) And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Would you pray one more time with me real quick? Lord God, we are so grateful uh, for your word. We are grateful that you have come. We are grateful that you have revealed yourself to us, and we pray but as we look at your word this morning, as we look at the birth of Jesus, God, we pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would speak to our hearts. We pray that you would bring hope where there's only been hopelessness so far. We pray that you would bring life where there's only been death. We pray that you would bring joy when there's, when, where there's only been despair and depression. And so God, we look to you this morning. We hope in you. We trust in you. And we ask that you'd bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in need of hope. Uh, hope. Hope is what life is built on. Whenever, whenever you have uh, happiness in your life, it's because hopes have been fulfilled. And whenever you experience sadness in life or anger in life or any negative emotion, really, it's because hope of some kind has been dashed. And so the way uh, Paul Tripp de- defines hope is he says that hope is always an object and an expectation. And so we have something that we place our hope in, and then we have expectations for that hope. And so whenever whenever our hopes don't meet our expectations, we're left with all sorts of despair, depression, sadness, guilt, anger, all sorts of things. Whenever hopes fail us, we're left wondering where to place our hope. And, And this morning, what I want to talk about is hope. I want to talk about where we can place our hope, where we can find our hope, because we need hope. We need hope because our country right now is a wreck with all kinds of political and racial division and strife, and, and we need hope and peace that only God can bring. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but we can't seem to figure these kinds of things out. No matter how hard we try or how often we try or how long we try, uh, we continually have this kind of tension and strife with one another because of something the Bible calls sin sin entered into the world in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, If you're familiar with the story, what happened there was there was a serpent who showed up to the first man and the first woman, and, and he began to cause them to doubt God's word to them. He began to cause them to doubt God's goodness, to doubt what God had said to them. And so they believed the serpent's lies, and then they rebelled against God. They did the one thing that God had told them not to do. And typically when we think about that story, we tend to think about, you know, why, why is God like kind of setting them up for failure here by giving them something like if they cross this boundary, then everything's gonna be a wreck. And that's not really what's happening there. What's happening there is God is giving them uh, his revelation. He's showing them that if they will obey him and trust in him and rely upon him and not on their own understanding... Then they can find life and joy and peace and hope. And the reason that we struggle so much with hopelessness is because, like Adam and Eve, we have chosen to place our hope in other places. And so we live in a culture where there is political and racial tensions. We live in a culture where 1 in 10 people struggle with depression in any given year, and every 12 minutes, someone dies of suicide, which is, I think, about three or four times the amount of people who, are, uh, who die because of homicide. We live in a culture where almost 2 in 10 people in any given year struggle with a significant amount of anxiety and fear and worry. We live in a culture in which one in four women and one in six men, one in four and one in six, will experience the trauma of abuse at some point in their life. And, and the, holidays, the, the holidays are a reminder of all that's gone wrong. At the holidays, we're reminded of what a mess we've made of all of our relationships. We, we kind of look forward to family reunions because there's supposed to be this time filled with joy and happiness and laughter as we gather with the people we care about most. But what often happens is when we get there, we're reminded of why we're not often together, Right? We get there and we're reminded why we haven't seen Uncle Joe in in five years, okay? And we get there and we're reminded about the thing that we did a couple years ago and how people are still upset with us about it, and our families experience this brokenness as a result of sin, and it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, So the holidays, they're a reminder of the mess we've made of our relationships. They're a reminder of all our struggles with sin that we just can't seem to shake. They're a reminder of all that has gone wrong, all that we have lost, jobs, loved ones, friends, dreams, hope. See, the holidays are supposed to be the most joyful time of the year, but oftentimes they're the most difficult for us. And the reason is, is because we don't know where to place our hope. You see, we place our hope in all the wrong places. We place our hope in just having the job that we've wanted for so long. We place our hope in having the money to pay our bills this week. We place our hope in those relationships that have been broken for so long, finally being restored. We, we watch the Hallmark movies, and then we see how everything just ends up the way it should be at the end, where you know the guy gets the girl, and the family is brought back together, and everything, everybody's laughing and smiling, and they're drinking hot cocoa, and everything's working out. And we begin to believe the lie that things just work out like that because it's Christmas time. But it's just like it, that we have the kind of power that like Thanos does where he can just snap his fingers and things work out the way he wants them to. Okay? And, and we place our hope in all these things. We place our hope in resources, in relationships, in, in our dreams. And when those things are dashed, we're left not knowing what to do. Well, could I just submit something to you this morning? Just, if, if you find nothing else out about Christmas, that there is a reason for hope. And that's what we see in Luke chapter 2, is, is that there is a reason for hope. Let's look at these three reasons, starting with our hope being found in God's sovereignty. We read, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And so it's talking. what we're getting at here is Luke is, is pointing out to us some things about the setting. And so in this day, Rome was the, the ruling uh, power in the world. And so uh, Caesar uh, sends out this decree that all of them have to be registered. They have to take a census. They have to uh, get an account of who everyone is, how many of them there are, and where they're from. And so Joseph and Mary, who's pregnant with the baby Jesus, Are are sent back to Bethlehem, and, and they're sent back to Bethlehem in fulfillment of a prophecy made by Micah hundreds of years before. And so Caesar sends out this decree to accomplish his own purposes and to accomplish his census, to, build, to continue to build his own kingdom, and that then God uses this decree for his own purposes, to fulfill promises that God himself has made hundreds of years before. So we read in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you know, try and say that five times. Um, you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And so what Micah is saying is that this little town of Bethlehem, from this little podunk town that, that means nothing to most people, is to come the one who is going to be the Savior, the one who is to be the Messiah. Born in Bethlehem was this one to be, the hope of all the world was to be born in this little tiny town. I don't know about you, but I, I think back on, on, you know, little towns in Missouri where, where I grew up. You know, I grew up in kind of the center of the state in a bigger town. And then, you know, I would travel to visit family members in Macon and Moberly, Missouri. And, and the reason you have no idea what those places are is because they're small like Bethlehem. They are the Bethlehems of the world. They are the little podunk towns where, you know, not that many people are there. And, and it, it's not really like a, a town that's like on a major map. Like, it's not like a St. Louis, a Kansas City, a Louisville, a Lexington. It's not those. Bethlehem is this little town that, that I mean, Micah says, too little to be among the clans of Judah. So it, it's not of real significance to most people. And the Messiah was prophesied to be born there which was so unlikely, you know, and so, like, so unexpected, and so this was a clear sign that this is who this is, and so the reason I say that our hope is found in God's sovereignty is what we see here is that the ruling power of the day, Rome, which was an empire that is arguably potentially the greatest empire the world has ever seen, Rome lasted much longer than we, as the United States of America, have been around thus far. And honestly, you know, it'll be a, a miracle if we make it as long as Rome did. Rome was an incredible ruling power of the day. They were this incredible government. They, they had this thing called the Pax Romana. And, and what this was was the idea that Rome's rule would bring about peace. That if you would just submit to the Roman rule, to the rule of the Caesars, then then they would establish peace because everyone was underneath the rule of this same Lord. And so the, the idea was that as Rome's empire spread, then peace would spread with it. And what we see here is really ironic because in this day when the Roman Empire was at its height... The empire that was famous for this Pax Romana, the the supposed establishment of peace over all the world under this Roman rule of the Caesars or the kings of Rome, the true king of the world, is born and the prophecies about his birth are fulfilled actually through the decree of Caesar. And so this great ruling power of the day is nothing in the sight of God. God turns it in his hands like it's putty. He accomplishes his purposes through the, the decree of the most powerful man in the world at the time. This man sends out a decree to build his own kingdom, and he begins to bring about the fulfillment of God's. God is completely sovereign over the events of history. And so it, it, it's amazing. One, one, one pastor put it this way. It, it's almost like God is playing with the Roman government like it's Legos and a child's in a child's toy chest, like, like he's just kind of putting them where he wants them to go and, and shaping it how he wants it to happen, and, and he's doing so in fulfillment of prophecies made hundreds of years ago, and, and it's really miraculous that this is all playing out this way, that the birth of the Messiah would come about. Through the decree of the ruling power of the day, it was totally unexpected. And so Joseph and Mary and and the baby Jesus, they're headed to Bethlehem because this is fulfilling the prophecies made about Jesus' birth, and God is demonstrating his sovereignty over all of it. And so this gives us great hope in our culture today, because right now there is a ton of anxiety about this whole impeachment deal, okay? Okay? And so there are, there are those of us who are anxious because we wonder what's going to happen if President Trump is removed from office. And there are those of us who are anxious because we wonder what's going to happen if he continues to be in office. And so there are all sorts of anxieties and stresses uh, that are going on in our political environment right now. And, and we, play, we, we are so anxious about all of this because we've placed our hope in a place where it can't, it can't stay. It can't be founded on any political leader or any government, honestly. I mean, the Roman government lasted for a length that is incredible. Like I said, if the United States of America lasts as long as Rome did, it will be miraculous and amazing and a testimony to history. But the thing is, governments, they rise up and they fall away. Political leaders, they rise up and they fall away. You see, when we place our hope in governments or our hope in a political leader, I don't care whether you like Trump or you don't like him. I don't care whether you like his successor whenever his term is over, whether it's soon or years down the road. That's not the point. The point is, if we're placing all our hope in creation, then we've missed the point the creator is trying to make. You see, we're so anxious about what's happening right now politically because we think our hope is there, and we're worried about what's going to happen because if it doesn't happen according to the way we think it should happen, we think our hope is gone. And what we ought to see in this kind of sovereignty of God demonstrated in Luke chapter 2 where he is so sovereign over the ruling governments and rulers of the world where he almost plays with them like they're Legos to accomplish his purposes. This ought to give us great hope in our environment now because it means there's a true king who has come. It means there is one we can place our hope in and bank on. It means that no matter what happens in the coming days in our country, in our environment, we still have reason for hope, no matter how dark it may look. Because there's a king who's on his throne and he's demonstrated his ability to rule right here in Luke chapter two. And so we hope in God's sovereignty Next, And I want to point out just a few quick things about this, this traditional Christmas story, okay? So I want you to notice some things uh, in verses 6 and 7. So they head to Bethlehem, and, and it says, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So notice first that th- this isn't the typical picture we have where Mary and Joseph are just like hightailing it to Bethlehem, and like they're driving through the night, and, and they're, they're not going to make it in time, and, and Mary's going to have birth any second, and and they're worried about where they're going to stay. This is not the picture here. They've arrived in Bethlehem, Luke says. And while they're there, the time comes for Mary to give birth. And so some of our kind of stereotypical visions of what this, how this story played out are, are a little off base. And so Mary and Joseph are already there in Bethlehem. And the time comes for her to give birth. And they've already found a place to stay. Okay, so I, I know that's going to seem confusing. I'll explain that here in just a minute. Verse 7. And she gave birth to his, her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Well, Pastor Grant had just said there's no place for them in the hotel. Well, that word inn here doesn't actually mean uh, inn like motel or hotel like you and I would think of it. it it's, Luke uses a, a different word in the original language to actually refer to that kind of idea later in his gospel. And so later when you get to the passage about the Good Samaritan, You see, Luke used this word that refers to that kind of an inn, that kind of a motel, hotel-type concept where lots of people could stay there, and you purchased a room, and you had it for so many nights, and and all those kinds of ideas. What Luke is actually talking about here is a different word in the original language. And this word actually refers to a house or a guest room. And so what Luke is trying to say is that, uh, you know, Joseph was of the line of David, as he said, right? And so they, they were of the royal line. Bethlehem was called the city of David. Now Jerusalem was what was commonly referred to the city of David, but Bethlehem also came to have this nickname for itself because there were so many descendants of David who lived there. And so Joseph's family was from there, and so Joseph heads back there with his betrothed wife, Mary, and they head back there, and they were of the royal line. And so for them to not have a place to stay would have been a scandal for the entire town. And so that's not what's taking place here. They've actually found a relative to stay with, but that relative, their guest room is full because they've already got relatives in it. And so look with me. There, there should be a diagram that they put up on the slides here. Yes, there we go. So this is what a, a first century home would have looked like. So they would have had usually two rooms, uh, a family living room, which was the main room, and then they would have had a guest room where relatives and the travelers visiting would have stayed. And so <coughs> when, it, when Luke says that the inn was full... He, he's actually referring to this word here for guest room. He, he's talking about the guest room of this house was was already full with other relatives, and so Mary and Joseph couldn't stay in there. And so what happened is this family actually brings them in to the family room where they would have lived, where they would have slept. And so Mary and Joseph are sleeping in in there uh, with with their relatives, and there's these mangers. And what a manger was, was it was kind of carved out of the floor or out of wood, and, and it was a feeding trough for animals. And so in the ancient world, uh, it would get chilly sometimes at night, and so they would bring animals in at nighttime And they would tie them up inside the home, inside the family living room, and and there were steps that kind of ran down towards where the animals would go. And so the home was designed so that things kind of ran down and and all the stuff didn't run back up to where you were sleeping, which is probably a good thing. Um, I don't know if you've ever slept on, on some ground that doesn't work that way. Um, I had an experience camping one time, uh, which I don't have time to go into all the details, but let's say I woke up in about two feet of water, and that was real exciting. Um, it, but it was, it was designed so that the, the, everything would slant the other way. It would go towards where the animals were. And so the animals would be in this stable section, and then they would be able to uh, feed from the feeding troughs that were right there. And so at night, that's where the animals would stay. And so what's happening here with Joseph and Mary and the child, Jesus, is they are in this... <coughs> sorry. Uh, they, they are in... i got to learn to turn the mic off. You know what I'm saying? Like, anyways, we don't have time for that. They're staying in this family living room with their relatives, and it's packed out. And, and so they lay the baby Jesus in the manger because it was so full. And so they lay him in this feeding trough with fresh straw, and, and it's, it's a comfy, cozy place for a newborn baby. He, he fits. And so this is the idea here. It's not that all the relatives and And all the town had rejected this couple and and rejected Joseph and Mary. This is what's happening here, is the guest room is full, and so they have to stay in the family living room with their relatives, and the baby Jesus, the only place he can sleep, is in the feeding trough, is in the manger. And we'll see here uh, why this is so significant in the next section. So let's look at how our hope is in God's incarnation and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. and They were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And so let's pause there for a minute and just kind of set the scene. So, so these shepherds are, are out in the field, and they're with their sheep, and it's, it's dark out. And then all of a sudden, an angel shows up in all, in all God's glory, and, and the glory of the Lord shines so bright that they are, they are shocked, they are afraid, they're, they're trembling. Because here's the thing that we must understand about shepherds. Uh, no, nobody wanted to be a shepherd, okay? Um, shepherds were, were, in the ancient world, looked, looked down upon. And so, you know, we read in the Old and New Testaments some really positive things about shepherds. You know, when we think about Psalm 23 and how it refers to God as a shepherd. But in the, in the first century, there was kind of this, this shift in the first, second century uh, uh, in attitudes towards shepherds. And so shepherds were seen as the lowest of low in their society at the time. And so... You know, there would be even rabbis who would refer to shepherds uh, in the same camp as, as lepers and tax collectors. And if you know anything about lepers and tax collectors in the ancient world, uh, you didn't want to be either of those things either. You didn't want to be a leper because you were seen as unclean and you couldn't be around anybody. And, and you were rejected and cast aside. You didn't want to be a tax collector because they were known as the, the brutal thieves of the Roman world. They, they, had, they had power and they abused it to take people's money. When they would collect taxes, they, they, would add, they would add requirements onto it and pocket it. And so you didn't want to be a tax collector, you didn't want to be a, leopard, a leper, and you did not want to be a shepherd. You see, shepherds were viewed in this similar light. It was thought that they were likely all thieves. And so their testimony in court was not considered credible, much like women in that day. And so we've already noted how Luke has portrayed women in the ancient world in an incredible light that was very countercultural and now he's doing the same thing with shepherds. You notice that, uh, that women are, are portrayed as those having incredible faith in Luke's gospel uh, in a world in which their testimonies weren't accepted in a, a court. And then we see that shepherds, who likewise, they were not, their testimony was not credible in court, they are, are the ones that the angels come to and say the Messiah's been born, the Savior has come. And so the shepherds, were this lowest of low in the social caste system of the day. They were, they were those that you did not want to be. And, and so whenever the angels show up, whenever God's glory starts to shine, they're afraid. Because here's the thing. If, if you've ever been in a, a locker room or if you've ever uh, seen uh, the, the kinds of jokes that men make when they're all hanging out together, um, you, you know that there's some things said sometimes that it probably shouldn't be said, um, and there's some things that go down that probably shouldn't. Um, and, and, and you would know that this kind of feeling, you know like uh, of the shepherds, they, they would have been everyday guys who worked hard jobs, and they probably made some, some callous coarse jokes, and, and they were guys that would have every reason to be afraid if God's glory sh- showed up in the middle of their shift. And so they're out in the field, and God's glory shows up, the angel shows up, and they are trembling and terrified because they know some things about themselves that it's exposing. They know that they have no right to stand in God's holy presence. They know that God knows about them what they already know about themselves, and that they're in real trouble. So, so they're terrified when the angels show up. And then the angel says, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy. This is not what the shepherds were thinking. They thought God has come to judge us. God has come to judge our sin, and, and we're totally deserving of it. And, and they thought they were in real trouble. And yet the angel says, no, I've, I've come to bring you good news. I've come to bring you a gospel, good news of great joy that will be for all the people, all of God's people. He says, for unto, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's talk for a minute just about what those three terms mean. And so so the the angels say that this, this baby that's born is to be a savior, which implies that we need saving from something, right? And so God has sent a savior to save us from sin, uh, we've rebelled against God, we've separated ourselves from God. Isaiah says that our, our sins have actually hidden God's face from us so that when we rebel against God's good will for us, we actually separate ourselves from God so that we can't see him anymore. And so we need someone to come and save us, to rescue us from this. And the angel says that this Savior is this child. And then he says that this child is also Christ and the Lord, and so Christ was a term for the Messiah. This was, this was the coming Jewish king who would bring about the redemptive rule of peace on earth. And then the Lord, it, it, this, this is a term that is only used to refer to God in the Old Testament. It's, it, they, they believed that about God's name that it was so holy that they wouldn't speak it. And so instead of speaking God's name, they would say the Lord when they referred to God. And so when the angel shows up, and, and, he, and the angel says that this child is the Savior, that is, he is Christ the Lord, he's saying God himself has come in fulfillment of the prophecies that Malachi made that we looked at a few weeks ago, where Malachi said there was going to be this forerunner coming before the Messiah, and we talked about how John the Baptist was that forerunner, and then God himself was going to come to save and redeem and establish justice. And so the angel's saying, that's what's taking place here. And he's revealing this to shepherds. He's not revealing it to the religious elite in the temple. He's not revealing it to those who have it all together and have it all figured out. He's revealing this to everyday people like you and me. He's revealing himself, God is, to people like us. You see, because in God's angel being sent to the shepherds, here's what we see. We see that God came for and identifies with us. He came, he came for the lowly. He came for the everyday man and woman. He came for those of us who, like the shepherds, we know that if God shows up and he knows some things about us that, that put us in some real trouble, like, you know, we often say, like, if, if your life, if you, the thoughts of your heart were just kind of visually displayed on a screen in front of everybody, you would be, you would never want to set foot around them again, and they wouldn't want to be around you either because they would then know the things that you think that no one else knows. And yet God already knows all these things. He knows all these things about us. He knows our deepest, darkest struggles. He knows every time that we've messed up. He knows every time that we have made a mess of our family. He knows every time that we have sinned against him, sinned against others, and and if he were to show up apart from Christ, we'd be in real trouble, and this is what the shepherds realize. So, so God, though, he comes to those of us who are like the shepherds, who are everyday people, who are lowly, who are looked down on, who, who struggle with sin, who, who know that, that we need Saving. He comes for us. He comes for the everyday person like you and I. Verse 12, and this will be a sign. <coughs> Oops. There we go. All right. This will be a sign you'll find him lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So we talked about earlier the irony that, you know, as Rome tries to establish peace itself, the the king of the world who reigns over all kingdoms and all kings has actually come to bring about peace. And so the, the angel says that to the shepherds, This is the sign, this is how you're going to know this is happening, that he's going to be lying in a manger. And the reason this was significant is because this was not the typical way that a, the birth of a king would be celebrated. Kings don't get laid in mangers. You know whose kid gets laid in a manger? A shepherd's kid, uh, an, an everyday child. Someone among the lowly, someone among those who are are not rich, not wealthy, not of high estate in life. And so the shepherds, this was very much a sign for them that the Savior had had come for people like them. The angel says, "You'll you'll know that this is the child because this child's gonna be lying in a manger, which was unexpected." And so that they come, and they see this child lying in the manger, and they know that what the angel has said has come to pass, that God himself has shown up and is present. This is the idea of incarnation. This is what we mean when we talk about the incarnation. We're talking about the idea that God himself has taken on flesh and come and dwelt among us like John says in John chapter 1 that God did not stand far off, that he did not just kind of watch the world turn, but instead, he entered into it with us. This is, this is great hope for sufferers and sinners. It's great hope for those of us who have suffered much in life because God understands us. He's quite literally walked in our shoes. God didn't just sit on his throne, but instead, he came and was born laid in a manger, laid in straw. In this, in this feeding trough where animals would have fed, God humbled himself, took on flesh, dwelt among us, lived a human life so that he could stand in our place. So this means God, God knows the pain that you've experienced. God knows the pain of searing loss that you might be walking through right now. God knows what it's like to lose a friend. God knows what it's like to lose a family member. God knows what it's like to see those you care about suffer in unimaginable ways. God knows because he's lived it. He's walked it. He's been with us, among us. He's lived as a human being. And because he's come as a human being, he's taken on a human nature as well. In addition to his divine nature, Jesus is is the only person who can stand in our place. So we talked about how in Genesis 3 humanity rebels against God, separates themselves from God, and now we're in this this pickle where, where we need someone who can come and live the life that we cannot live and have chosen not to live. And then we need someone to die in our place so that we don't have to die the death that we deserve, so that we don't have to pay the price. And because Jesus has come. As a human being, because God came and took on flesh, because the Savior has come, because the Christ has come, because the Lord himself has come, we have hope. This is what Christmas is all about. It's about the incarnation. It's about how God himself has come. He's not waited for us to find our way back to him, but instead he's pursued us in love that he might redeem and reconcile us to himself. And thirdly, we see that we find hope in God's revelation. Look with me at verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. That phrase, the Lord has made known to us, is some of the most hope-filled literature you will ever read in your life. That the God who created all things has not left the world to spin and left us to try and figure things out on our own, but instead he has revealed himself to us, he has revealed truth to us, he has shown us what is right, what is good, and he has, in fact, revealed himself through his words. That God makes himself known to us. In John chapter one, we read, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And so we talked last year at Christmas time about how this was talking about Jesus, how John, as he's writing his account of Jesus's life and ministry, he, talks, he calls Jesus the word of God. He says, in the person of Jesus Christ, God himself has spoken to us. And so just like God spoke to shepherds through an angel thousands of years ago, he still speaks to us through his son now. He still speaks through the incarnation. He still speaks through his words. God is a God who reveals himself. And, and if we want to know how we can connect with God, how we can have a relationship with God, then it has to start with God's words about himself. It has to start with God's revealed word in, in the scriptures. It has to start with understanding who Jesus is according to the scriptures. You know, Tim Keller said it this way, like a baby learning language, we learn how to communicate with God by listening to his words first. So we have to hear from God. And, and the good news is that God has spoken that God has spoken to us. If you want a thriving relationship with God, it begins with hearing him speak in his word. So I don't know where you're at in life right now, what you're walking through this Christmas season, and what, what ways you're struggling to find hope. But a rock-solid place you can actually find lasting hope and joy and peace. As in the fact that, God has spoken to us. And he continues to speak through his word. As his spirit gives us understanding of what he said to us in his word. And as his spirit gives us an understanding of who Jesus is. We talked about how in, in Luke 1, Luke mentions the Holy Spirit several times. And throughout Luke and Acts, uh, Luke just continues to present the Holy Spirit to us. And what. We read about the Holy Spirit in John's gospel is that the Holy Spirit was a helper and he was meant to point us to Jesus and give us understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. You see, at the heart of the Christian faith is understanding what God has made known to us. Just like he made known to these shepherds, shepherds through the angels, that, that the Savior had come. He's trying to make this known to us today. Verse 16, they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. So so they find this baby laying in the manger and, and they're like, Oh my gosh, it, it's true. What the angel said has actually happened. And so they, they go to Mary and Joseph. They're like, I know you don't know us at all. And, and I know we're shepherds. And like, you know, maybe we wouldn't even be that, that friendly. But, but we have a story to tell you. You're not going to believe this. And they, they tell this mother who's, who's sitting with her newborn child and this father. And, and they tell them about these angels that have shown up. The glory of the Lord being revealed to them, and then, and then what they said about this child, that he was God who had come to save us, that he was the promised Christ, the Messiah, who would one day rule and reign over all the earth, establishing peace and justice where there had been chaos and violence before, that their child was this promised one. And look at what Mary does. Mary, but Mary treasured up all these things. Pondering them in her heart. And so Mary, she, she begins to internalize on a heart level this message from God through the shepherds about her son. She begins to say, how, has, how does this word from God change my life? How does this transform my heart? She begins to ponder it. I, I remember you know, early on, when I was learning to study the Bible and I had a pastor that, that, that had me do this exercise. He, he had me take a passage of scripture and he said, okay, I want you to take 20, 30 minutes and I want you to write down everything that you can possibly observe in this passage. Every observation you can think of, every question you can think of, I want you to write it all down and I don't want you to come back until you've got at least 20 and I thought he was crazy because I had like five verses. And, and so I thought, there's no way. And so I go and I start and I, I begin to think about what God is saying through this passage. And I begin to write down things that I'm seeing in it and questions that I have about what God's saying. And, and I, I get to like five. So I've got like one for each verse, you know. And I think, okay, there's nothing else here. Like there's nothing else that I could possibly pull out of this. And so I go back and I show him and I, I say, hey, here's, here's what I got. And he's like, nope, go back. So I go back and I, I, start, I start pondering it some more and I start thinking about what God's saying some more and, and I, I ask God to help me see what he's saying and, and then I see, a, oh, that's there too. And so I th- then I write down another one or two observations, and, and I, I write down another couple questions, and then, and then it just kind of begins to, to steamroll, and I begin to write down all sorts of things that I didn't see in it before. And this is the thing about God's words to us. As when we ponder them, when we treasure them, when we think about how they should mold and shape us, when we when we actually hear these words as though they are God speaking to us because they are, there are endless things that God will use to transform us. There, there is so much truth packed into his word. And it's transformative. Look at what the shepherds do. After they've heard all this, they've seen that what God has said is true. The shepherds return glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, the child, he was called Jesus, which means God saves. This was the name, Luke says, given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And so the shepherds, after they've had this transformative experience with God's glory, as God has revealed himself to them, they worship. Mary, she, she ponders these things in her heart. She, she thinks about how this, this message that she's heard about this child is going to transform her life. And this is what we have to do as well. We can't just hear this as, as a nice story this Christmas. It can't just be a tradition where we kind of read the Christmas story together and then move on with our lives. Our, the, our only proper response is to treasure this word from God, is to ponder how it might shape and transform us because there is real and lasting hope to be found here. But if you just hear it and move on, you're gonna keep searching for hope in places where you won't find it. But if you pause and, and just let God speak to you this morning, that the birth of his son is your hope and that it lasts and that it's real, that God himself has come to save and that he has revealed himself to us and that he's so sovereign that nothing in our lives, nothing in our country, nothing in our world Escapes his rule and reign. And friends, we have lasting, real hope at Christmas time this year because Jesus has been born in a manger. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful this morning that you have sent your Son. God, we ask that you would continue to speak to us through your word. We pray that you would help us to understand. We pray that we would mull over these things, treasure them in our hearts, ponder them further, and that, God, you would use your word by the power of your spirit to shape and transform us. God, I pray for my friends right now who are struggling to find hope. God, would you help them to find hope and rest and joy in you this morning? I pray that regardless of what they're walking through, I pray that you would be present with them, that you would comfort them, that you would encourage their hearts, that you would would turn their hearts towards your son. Spirit of God, continue to speak to us, continue to help us as we, like the shepherds did, turn now to worship. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.